0: Jonathan Matthew Ward. Most people call me J. Matt. It's a little nickname that I have. I am assistant professor of history at Quincy University uh, here in uh, Quincy, Illinois. I focus on the uh, Civil War era in American history, and I'm joined by my colleague,
1: Padraig Rohan. You wanna... Yeah. Uh, so my name is Padraig, and uh, I'm also a historian here at Quincy University, and we are here in J. Matt's office. My home office. Yeah. Home <laughs> office here in Quincy. And this is the introductory episode uh, for our podcast, Citizens History. So we're very happy to, to be doing this. We really want to... Um, we want our, our listeners to be to feel very included and involved. I, I would like to put the word out right at the beginning, you know, to, we are, you know, if if you like or don't like a particular episode, a particular approach, a particular, uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear like where you think that uh, it should be going. Uh, not that we're going to necessarily be... Uh, be... <laughs> yeah, this is a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs>
0: what, uh, what do you think we mean by citizens' history? Because I have a perspective, right, and, right. and you have a perspective. I see us handling um, historical issues, but also current-day political and social issues in a very accessible way. So we want this to be a podcast exactly. for academics. We want it to be a podcast for you know the armchair NPR listeners. We also want it to be a podcast for the most you know, fanatical right-wing MAGA person out there who just wants to hear a different... Uh, perspective. And and hear it in a way that's understandable. Uh, We try to keep the academic language to a minimum, though I do get carried away with that from from time to time. (laughs) So it's really presenting history and politics in a way that's accessible for the average citizen. So citizen's history. What about you? What's your context? Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, One of the great weaknesses of the historical discipline is that we often tend to talk only with each other. And so there, there can be a problem with that. You know, there's, on the one hand, it is inevitable that professional historians are specialized. We got to specialize, you know, there's just so much out there. No one can be in all the archives. Uh, and more than other disciplines, we really, really depend on our colleagues, you know, to contextualize things for us and to, um, try to help us answer the, the all important question you know so what uh, why why should anybody care about any of this and so yes citizens history means we have to balance kind of the expertise not only that that uh, we might have or we might think we have but also the expertise that we're bringing in you know the guests that we have the um, uh, the ways in which we try to understand the great issues of the day, but at the same time bring that expertise down to the level of, um, or rather draw that expertise out to uh, a place that will be relevant to, to your, your average educated citizen. And uh, so there are a couple of different ways that we can do that, right? Part of it is uh, just discussions between us, uh, between two historians, yeah. bringing in other people, um, bringing in other uh, other historians, political scientists, sociologists. Hopefully, uh, I, I would envision it going out to religious scholars and uh, scientists and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I also envision us talking, not just to, not just at, but also with ordinary citizens. Yeah. Okay, how can we... Um, for example, if we're engaging on uh, on, on the topic of uh, democracy and contested visions of democracy, uh, it's one thing to be very highfalutin or very in the weeds, but it's another thing to bring in another fellow educated citizen to to chop it up with uh, chop it up with us about that. Uh, so, democracy, capitalism, religion, science—there are all these things that are not going to be the preserve of of experts cannot be the preserve of experts yeah and so i really look forward to to engaging um um, not just with expertise and recognizing where expertise is valid but also the limits of that expertise yeah
0: absolutely i i'm glad that you bring up the theme of democracy because i think that will be sort of the heartbeat of the podcast Mm. and then uh Democracy, in and of itself is something of a a balanced system right between at least the founders envisioned it that way for American democracy Uh, we have leaders who are are educated and austere and quote unquote know what they're doing whether that's true or not uh, we we can debate that and then there are the people the voice of the people resonates throughout uh, the democracy and they're having some influence on the government and I think to understand democracy you need to look at both and their limitations so our podcast can reflect that theme and that like we're we're bringing a certain level of expertise but we also want to include uh, regular folks. So what I thought what we might do now is maybe introduce ourselves on a little bit more in-depth level, so people know who we are, and then sort of talk about our perspectives on democracy, because I'm a bit of a negative person. You're probably a bit more positive than I am, so I'll go first and talk about all my problems with democracy, in, both in the grand Western tradition but also the American iteration of it, and then you can, you can clean up and leave some positivity and hope for people who might be uh, listening to this. I was born and raised in Amory, Mississippi. Uh, which has two claims to fame. One, uh, FDR came through on a locomotive in 1934 or 36 and they've still got that locomotive in uh, Frisco Park uh, there in Amory. It's about 30 miles south of Tupelo where Elvis was born. Um, The second claim to fame is Trent Harmon who won quote-unquote final season of American Idol and I think they've had three seasons since that final <laughs> season but uh, he, he is a notable uh, individual from there. We had the same music teacher in high school and I actually met him once I think years before he was All right. uh, famous. Um, so that that's Amory, Mississippi. That, that's where I'm from. I went to Itawamba Community College for my first two years of undergrad in Fulton, Mississippi and I majored in social studies. I always loved history. I didn't quite know what to do with my life or in what direction to go with social studies, but that was what I was interested in. And while I was there, um, looking for schools to transfer to for my second two years of undergrad and looking for a way to balance, since we're talking about balancing things so much, uh, history and literature. And I I had a professor there just say, just double major in both. (laughs) So I um, for my second two years of undergrad, I transferred to uh, the Mississippi University for Women, which has been accepting men since 1982, or 83 perhaps. Um, it's written in very fine print at the bottom of the sign. At least it was the last time I saw the sign out in front of the school. I think they're in the process of changing the name of the school now, but anyway. Um, I went there, I, I majored in history and in English with an emphasis in creative writing. Uh, I had great professors there that really uh, deepened my love for history and uh, deepened my passion for primary research and critical thinking and getting to the bottom of things and not just thinking on on a a surface level. Um, Then I had a year off uh, between uh, undergrad and grad school, I got my master's uh, at uh, University of Missouri, in Columbia, Missouri. I worked with Dr. Leanne White while I was there. And then I got my PhD at Louisiana State University. So I went from the Tigers in Missouri to the Tigers in Louisiana. Um, uh, Louisiana's better, they have an actual live tiger there that's uh, quite pampered. Um, my dissertation, Garden of Ruins, Occupied Louisiana and the Civil War, uh, will be out next year with uh, LSU Press, so I'm excited about that. We'll probably talk about it on this show. And so my research interests are you know, military history and social history and military occupation at large, but I also really like environmental history, uh, labor history, gender studies. Uh, really, there's just not enough time in life to get invested in everything that I want to look at. So that's enough about me. I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my perspective on democracy and then I'll throw it over to you, Patrick. Um Perhaps it's my generation. Uh, I'm a millennial, so we, we're all negative Nancys, I think. Or maybe it's my education, or maybe it's just my you know, personal disposition, but I, I tend to be very suspicious of democracy as a concept. Um, I'm not even sure that it can exist. And I know all the Greek classicists are already readying their phalanxes to march on my house for even saying that. But it seems to me that it's very hard to create a society in which those who are most physically strong or, or materially the wealthiest don't somehow, either very quickly or through a process of years and machinations, you know, control society. And usually those power groups are male-centric, And furthermore, those power groups tend to create a society in which their perspectives uh, and physical body types and uh, backgrounds and skin color and everything else are normalized. And all other perspectives and body types and skin colors are considered to be uh, unwelcome at the least, perhaps even inferior at the worst. Uh, So is it possible to create a society in which everyone's voice is heard equally and that every single person in that society can find some sort of accommodation regardless of their background or their physical needs? I'll give you an example. I'm a scholar of the U.S. South. I'm a scholar of the U.S. Civil War, so I am acutely aware of America's racial problem. Uh, some might even say that it's the foundational problem of uh, of America. Uh, we can probably talk about that more at some point. But even after the Civil War, um, with all the violence that occurred there, we can see that there are tremendous limitations to American democracy. The Civil War is this moment where the government and reformers and, and black Americans achieve these really grand moments, primarily the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. and for. Uh, anyone listening who doesn't know off the top of their head what those amendments to the Constitution said. Very br- uh, briefly, the 13th Amendment uh, uh, made slavery illegal within the United States. The 14th Amendment supposedly protected the rights of, uh, the civil rights of black Americans. And the 15th Amendment uh, protected specifically the right to vote for a variety of reasons that uh, we won't go into. Now, But nevertheless, despite the changes to the governing structure of America, you still have plenty of white Southern conservatives after the war that redoubled their efforts to commit violence and uh, against black Americans and to exclude them from American democracy at every level. So not only is democracy limited on a personal level, but at the governmental level, by 1876, the government, and by that I mean, Lincoln's Republican Party had just sort of abdicated any sort of moral responsibility to protect these amendments and and, and black rights. I'm thinking principally of the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873 or U.S. v. Cruikshank in 1874, which really limit the fullness of freedom that the 14th Amendment was designed to protect. I mean, these cases basically gut the privileges and immunities clauses. So I I circle back to my central suspicions again. It seems to me that American democracy has always been somewhat exclusionary. And perhaps that we can debate to the end of time, first of all, how exclusionary is American democracy? And second of all, is that exclusion a central part of American identity, like uh, most recent scholarship, uh, like the 1619 Project might suggest? And no doubt we'll return to these again. I've heard a statement that democracy is only as old as its youngest constituency. So that would mean that American democracy is what only as old as 1964, 1965, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. Uh, you know, Perhaps democracy is inevitably or unavoidably unbalanced because within the, the tradition of classical liberalism, it tries to balance individual liberties with the common good. And I just that seems like such a difficult thing to do. Because when you you have such an array of individuals, and then you put them together in a group, how can you get any sort of coherent common good out of that? And another problem I have with democracy comes from the very concept of individualism, as it's so prominent in the Western tradition. Individuals inherently are given to self-interest and greed. Perhaps that's my jaundiced perspective. Maybe you have a different perspective on that. But when you when you take individuals that are inherently flawed. And you put them in charge of a system that's supposed to include everybody. It just, it just kind of falls apart over time. So individual liberty often comes at the expense of liberty for other individuals, whether that be civil rights or market opportunities. And we too often accept the privileges of individualism while abandoning the responsibilities of the collective good, such as listening to others and accommodating uh, their needs and perspectives. And I think the current rifts in our democracy circa 2016 – even though we could trace those discrepancies back further than that, illustrate Americans' profound incapacity for empathy and for listening and for dialoguing with one another. Not all the time, but there's so much consternation and antagonism in our nation today that it makes me wonder, is this not just sort of inherent to the system? If everybody gets a vote, if everybody gets a say, those are automatically going to come into conflict. So the motto that America has, it's on all of our money, the e pluribus unum, out of many, one, kind of rings hollow to me sometimes. And I really struggle to, to have faith in American democracy when it seems like um, it, it just kind of falls apart. It, it seems hollow uh, at many points because individual rights as a concept kind of seem at odds with the values of self-sacrifice and common good that the motto hopes to reflect. So that's my perspective. I'm not completely throwing democracy away, but I'm deeply suspicious of it for the, the basic reasons I've laid out here and I've gone on too long. But what's your perspective on it? Well, first, introduce yourself and yeah. then tell me what's your perspective on democracy and can we save it?
1: <laughs> yeah. That was some great points. I So yeah, I'll, I'll introduce myself very quickly first and then... Uh, Uh, and then get in but really quickly before I do that you probably know this story better than I but um, speaking of Tigers and speaking of LSU wasn't Huey Long a huge proponent of LSU absolutely and didn't I I remember reading in a a biography of him years and years and years ago I don't remember the details but he was basically he was trying to intimidate the referees during a game he did that often and they, they, I don't know if they still do, but they had a tiger actually as, you know, an actual tiger there. And he was like, yeah, I, I might have to set the tiger loose. Like, <laughs> I forget what the anecdote was, but it was brilliant. It really summed up his own personality. In his own leadership style.
0: <laughs> yeah, for, for anyone listening who doesn't know who Huey Long is, he was a very uh, powerful and rapacious uh, a governor of Louisiana in the, the 20s and 30s. or political figure in Louisiana, which included the governorship. And yes, he donated a lot of money to LSU and kind of made it what it is today, for better or worse.
1: <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, unlike JMAT, I did not major in history uh, at the undergrad level. I, um, I was always a, a rapacious reader. I was always a, an avid amateur historian, as long as I can remember. But I actually majored in engineering uh, in my undergrad days. And uh, I think that there's a lot of benefit to combining that with a study of history, a study of systems and... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, how do we how do we bring a better stu- uh, study of systems theory to uh, to history? Um, anyway, I never worked as a as an engineer. I became a, I became a public school teacher in the California public schools, and there's a lot of um, and that's a long story. But that lasted about three years, and then I uh, founded and directed a nonprofit. Uh, soon thereafter, I met my first wife, uh, an Italian girl, we moved to Italy together, and that was where my love of history really, uh, um, uh, really caught fire, again. Yeah. and so long story short, I was in uh, Italy for about four or five years, I was in Turkey after that for about eight, and um, at the end of that uh, long stretch abroad, I decided. Well, you know, if I am serious about studying history, then let's, uh, which which I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I need to, um, I need to go back to school, and I need I need to get my PhD. So that entire time abroad, from so that was 2002 to 2015. Um, I was working on an extremely amateurish, sprawling world history, and. Um, that's on the back burner right now. I'm sure I'll come back to that at some point, uh, perhaps after I get tenure or something okay. like that. <laughs> but my, my uh, specialty, what I focused on in grad school, uh, first uh, doing an MA in Turkey, and, um, uh, and later in, in California at Stanford University, I, uh, I focused on Islamic, European, and world history. And so that's extremely broad. World history, how can one specialize in it? A lot of historians would say, oh, it's impossible. World yeah. history isn't really a thing. You've got to be in the sources. You've got to be in, uh, in your specialization. And uh, that's one thing that world historians uh, can't do. That it's got to be a different approach. And so I, 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 I really, um, I think that that ties into what we were talking about earlier regarding you know, how does one balance the um, uh, the extent and also the limits of our expertise? As world historians, we uh, need a little bit more humility perhaps than, than than other historians do. And it also helps us to understand exactly how politicized our discipline is and becomes, and perhaps it's inherent, Perhaps it's inevitably uh, political in some ways, but it brings up a couple of related points. Number one, uh, to what extent can we ever be objective in uh, in studying and writing history? Uh, To what extent are our perspectives always gonna be limited, always going to be subjective? And uh, I know a lot of people come out uh, on one side or the other, but I I think it's really, really important that uh, that we explore this fully. Uh, and we'll, we'll no doubt be doing this in many future podcasts, many future episodes.
0: But just to cut in very briefly. You got your PhD at Stanford, yeah? Right? Did you say that? I, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. And what was your? Tell me briefly about that.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. I, I I got to have my hand in all sorts of different cookie jars, and uh, so I got to work with. Uh, um, Uh, a wonderful early modernist who who studies basically early modern Italy and especially the history of science. My main advisor, uh, uh, her name is Paula Finland. Um, And uh, then I also got to work with an Ottomanist across the aisle, Mm -hmm. so uh, someone who specializes in Ottoman history and who uh, did a tremendous amount to introduce me to Ottoman sources, Um, a wonderful professor named Ali Yaizhoulu. And my my I had two other uh, members of my team. Uh, number one, Rowan Doran, a really uh, amazing medievalist who studies uh, mostly medieval the medieval history of expulsions in mm-hmm. Europe, which we normally think of as uh, as exclusively Jewish. Uh, you know the, the the various Western European monarchies. Uh, which would bring in money lenders and then expel them, and you immediately think of Jews. But no, he shows that it was not just Jews in this period. Plenty of Italians, plenty of others were also getting expelled at this time. And only later did this become, uh, for, for a modern ear, with anyone remotely uh, acquainted with the history of Judaism, we immediately think of Jews when we think of medieval moneylenders. But uh, to medieval people themselves, they would not have had that. So anyway, he does some amazing work on that, and he really helped me to become, uh, he was really the driving force in in me becoming, uh, at least in part, a medievalist and the fourth member of my committee um, david como is a is a historian of early modern britain but he was kind of the world history piece yeah, i yeah. took i took some wonderful world history courses with him and so yes i um, i was very much a kid in a candy store as i uh, as i was going back and i went back to get my phd relatively late in life right i was uh, i think i was in my early 40s by the time i by the time i arrived at stanford yeah listeners should know that potter is much 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 older than yeah I'm just well, where you're a millennial. Yeah this is an important point, Not the age necessarily, but okay, so uh, you introduced yourself as a millennial. Yeah I suppose technically I'm Gen X. I was yeah. born in 1974. I never really, most Gen X stuff seems people who, at the time, called themselves Gen X. I would have been maybe 17, 18, and these people are already in their mid twenties. And at the time, that's a that's a, quite a big difference. Yeah. So I mean, I guess technically I'm a Gen X. It's never been something I've I've self identified as. Yeah. It's never been, but whatever. But Can does that take it or leave it?
0: Inform your perspective of history, because you know Gen X has some fists to shake as well. Principally, I'm thinking of Nirvana, or, and there's a certain amount of angst so, that's I coming out of that, so. that generation.
1: I suppose so, absolutely. Angst, but also, I mean, I. I so born in 74, I came, of, I, you know, a lot of my childhood was the 80s, you know, mm-hmm. and so when we think of the 80s, we can think of, uh, depending on your perspective, you'll think of uh, the Reagan era as, as, a, as a wonderful one or as, or you'll immediately go to Iran Contra, right? Yeah. You'll, uh, there, there's a very polarizing and polarized way in which, in which we view the 80s. Uh, people still think of '80s music, and you know, it's still a, it's still a theme on radio stations, and and so on and so forth. I mean, for me, it was um, uh, I don't know. For me, I grew up listening to, you know, what you might think of as. as uh, as mainline pop 80s music, but then I also listened to the, you know, the Pet Shop Boys and uh-huh. the New Order, and so that kind of, that kind, of... and then I also was listening, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area in California, and so I was listening to, um, you know, my friends and I, we were listening to Too Short and Run DMC and okay. Two Live yeah. Crew, I will probably, so it, it, it's a very, it's a very eclectic and uh, and broad-based thing. I don't think everybody who is my age or who is Gen X has that same experience in mm-hmm. the 80s or of childhood, but certainly, certainly I got to experience, you know, uh, I got to experience all of that. Yeah. So in addition to you and I being vastly different ages, as yeah, you yeah, point yeah. out, it's also, I think it's also fair to say that we're bringing vastly different viewpoints, right? Yeah. To the, to, and in, I, I hope in a very good and a very productive way, uh, we were talking about this uh, earlier when we were brainstorming the podcast, and you were... Um, so I think it's fair to say that that uh, J. Matt is very squarely on the left. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. And uh, J. Matt... But, but so I grew but, up very
0: conservative. Right, right. In,
1: in rural Mississippi, and, I, and I've moved very far to the left since then. Absolutely, absolutely. And at the... Um, um, and J. Matt kindly observed that I am much more moderate. And I recoiled at that, I recoiled at that characterization. I did not mean it as an insult. I know you didn't. And, and it's not like if somebody sees me as a moderate, I, I would never say, oh, I'm not a moderate. But I don't exactly know where I fit in. I've got several toes uh, where you might think I was really on the left. And I've mm-hmm. got several toes where you might think I'm really on the right. So I look forward to exploring that that aspect of it. Okay. Hopefully that that kind of um, that kind of productive conversation between 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 different and uh, contested viewpoints is probably a, um, is going to be I think part of the real value of of, of this podcast. Um, that said, I I was raised very conservative too. I mean, I yeah. grew up in I, I was born in Oakland. I was raised in Berkeley. Uh, and so these are some of the most left leaning places in the entire United States, and yet I was also raised conservative Catholic, yeah, so uh, having that double vision my entire time growing up was uh, certainly uh, it certainly spun me around, and it also i think i hope gave me gave me some grounding, yeah at least when when I became an adult and i start i'm uh, starting to be able to put the pieces together again so Um, I would love to get to the democracy piece now yeah go ahead so there's certainly room for a lot of pessimism but I would also argue that there's a room for a lot of optimism that uh, when in 2002 I left the United States and I moved to Italy uh, I was very much on the left yeah. And very much on the uh, on the far left, I would say. I viewed America as an unmitigated disaster. Uh, I viewed democracy as a sad joke. I was very much in the Chomsky-Zin vein at oh, the time. Oh, okay. So that's where I am. <laughs> okay, yeah. And so, just to lay it out, I know we've talked about this before, but there are at least four different very related but four different kind of buckets that we can put ourselves into right in, in, in speaking about democracy in America the first one let's let's take let's take the two rival ones at the rival extremes first right so let's take the, the, the Noam Chomsky Howard Zinn uh, view of democracy so Noam Chomsky as uh, as, as most of us know, or, a famous uh left activist he's a specialist in linguistics but he's um you know he's been a famous left, left activist for for a lot longer than i have been alive uh howard zinn likewise uh published a uh an iconic book in 1980 the uh, people's history of the united states and this school of democracy holds that our founders never intended to establish a democracy mm-hmm. and that we are at best an aspirational democracy today, that we may be able to get there at some point, but we are not yet a democracy. Uh, I think that's a a fair summary of of that view. Now, then take a rival view. You hear conservatives these days talk the language of democracy and not a republic. And I just want to point out the ways in which, even though they're polar opposites, even though these people will not agree on anything pretty much, they hold the, they hold a similar worldview. When Chomsky and Zinn and company say our founders never intended to establish a democracy, they are not wrong. By the founders' language themselves, mm-hmm. uh, uh, our founders understood democracy in a way very different from the way most of us understand it today. Absolutely. And so uh, the, the, the Chomsky Zin faction is not wrong. They say our founders never intended to establish a democracy, and they see that as a bad thing. Whereas the people on the right who say, who talk the language of democracy, sorry, republic, not a democracy, yeah. they will say the same thing. Our founders never intended to establish a democracy. And that was a good thing. Yeah. So even though they disagree on the value judgment, they, they agree somewhat on the, on the basis of it. So that's kind of an extreme right and an extreme left view on democracy in America. Then you have a what up until very recently was a mainstream view. This was something that uh, was, was a big part of the New York Times, for example, editorial slant. And this is something that probably uh, occupies most textbooks to this day. Most people listening will, will probably recognize this, this as the ways in which uh, the mainstream talks about democracy. That, of course, our founders intended to establish a democracy. And democracy in this mainstream view includes all of the things that our founders called, not all of our founders, but uh, that our mainline founders, John Adams, Madison, Hamilton, what they were calling mixed government. Yeah. So all of those. The checks and balances, right, that we all learned about in uh, in grade school and in high school civics class. So, judicial independence, um, uh, the judiciary separated from the executive, separated from the legislative branch. All of these things, according to the mainline definition of democracy, are democracy. Yeah. That's what, it's a package deal. The Bill of Rights, individual rights, all of that stuff, uh, that's that's what democracy is. So that's a, what up until very recently was the definition of democracy embraced by the New York Times, right, mm-hmm. and many, many others. And then we have, and I think this this goes to um, one of the points, that Matt that you were talking about earlier. Then we have kind of an intermediate between that mainstream view and the Noam Chomsky-Howard-Zinn view.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is the view that the 1619 project has popularized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jill Lepore, famous historian at Harvard, this would be her view as well, that democracy before the 1960s had an asterisk next to it. It was not real democracy. It was only with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the progress we have made since then that has made America a democracy. And so here we have this this uh, this range of views on democracy, right? Uh, the two polar opposite, far left and far right views, and then you've got the mainstream view, or what was the mainstream view up until recently, and then we've got maybe we can call it the 1619 view for short. Yeah. And full disclosure, I'm I find myself gravitating to mo- to, to the extremes rather than to the uh, to the mainstream view I certainly think it's very important for us to understand what our founders were trying to do yeah and so I don't think that the far left is wrong when they it's, it's a very important perspective to take on board when they say our founders never intended to establish democracy that's really really important now it it's nonsensical if we take our starting point as the mainstream view of democracy today yeah that if you if you if your view of democracy and this is like this isn't just, what people picked up in civics class. This is most theorists of democracy for the past at least three generations, probably more, have taken that view that mixed government is rolled into democracy. Democracy is that encompassing thing. Um, If that is your view of democracy, then it's absolutely nonsensical what the far left and the far right are saying. But I think it's an important starting point. That we say, look, our founders meant to establish a republic. And so what that means for democracy by their lights is that, yes, democracy is an important part of the puzzle, but too much is just as bad as too little. I think that would be a fair statement, certainly of what John Adams was trying to do. Hamilton was a little bit more extreme. He and Jefferson were kind of the polls fighting it out right mm-hmm. but uh, Adams was the one who really struck the middle ground who um, uh, whose whose Massachusetts Constitution was so fundamental for the for the later uh, US Constitution in 1787 and of course Madison uh, uh, and Hamilton really enunciating this view very clearly in the Federalist papers so um, I don't I am pessimistic in some ways, to pull it back to the, 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 the larger question you asked at first. But at the same time, I think that our Constitution, and this will probably mark me as a conservative for, mm. many, for, for many listeners, that our Constitution was uh, one of the great works of practical political philosophy in human history. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of what our founders were trying to do. I'm perhaps less of a fan of Jefferson uh, than I would be of John Adams. Yeah. And I know that we, you and I have <laughs> talked about this a lot. But yeah, it's it's uh, there's a lot to unpack. But that's that's kind of the preliminary view of um, uh, of, of how I feel about democracy.
0: Excellent. I, I, I would just want to tag in one small point at the end. Uh, I like the way you positioned the two extremes and then two middle perspectives. I I think a good way of thinking about the two extremes is that leftists would say the founders never intended to create a democracy. They very much were trying to centralize power in their hands, and that's a bad thing. Whereas right-wingers would tend to say you no, know, that's exactly what they were intended to uh, uh, intended on doing, and that's a good thing right. because right. there's no way that you can vote your way into a great society, and, and you cannot trust the passions of the people. And having you know a, elected, educated leaders is it, it, the best way to to go about uh, society. And I think you're absolutely right that the, there's some sort of middle perspective that we need to find there. So, yeah. Great. I think this will wrap things up for our our introductory episode. But this is basically how it's going to go. We're going to discuss issues that are prevalent to our our current day democracy by looking at the past, but trying to connect it to uh, our present day and the future. And hopefully, we'll solve all the world the world's problems. I mean, it's, it's, it's happening right here. Right? But um, yeah, we'll we'll stop there, and we will we oh, really?